0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and this week I'm happy to say that we have Paula Michaels on the show, and we'll be talking about her terrific book, Lamaz, An International History. I should say that I witnessed a childbirth about, I guess, 10 weeks ago now. My wife gave birth to our daughter, Rebecca, and uh, it was... uh, a beautiful thing, I suppose you're supposed to say, but I came away with the um, firm conviction that I never wanted to give birth to a child. I hope no women are offended by that, but it looked very difficult to me. And I've witnessed that's my third now. And every time I come away thinking, wow, that looked hard. So Paul is going to talk to us today about how uh, the medical establishments in various countries tried to ease the pain of childbirth using something called psychoprophylaxis, which is a word that's going to enter my vocabulary now, and uh, specifically the Lamaze Method. It's a fascinating book, and I encourage everybody to go out and buy it. So let me say welcome to the show, Paula.
1: Thank you, Marshall. Thanks
0: for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself before we begin the interview?
1: Sure. So um, I'm a Russian historian by training. I got interested in the Soviet Union back in the day when the Soviet Union still existed. (laughs) Um, I I grew up in a Russian neighborhood, Brighton Beach in New York City. And um, when I got to university, I had to take a foreign language. And I was choosing between Russian, Arabic, and Swahili, because wow. I wanted to do something exotic, that and I exotic. decided Swahili was too exotic, Arabic was too hard, and by default, I settled on Russian, yeah. and I fell in love with it, and I started taking Russian history classes and basically took every class that was available that had anything to do with Russia, Russian, or the Soviet Union. At uh, I was at Northwestern University. And then I went off to graduate school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and uh, worked for many years at the University of Iowa. And now I teach international studies and modern history at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia.
0: Well, that's a terrific story. Um, Although Russian is hard, too. I learned it. It's not easy. It
1: is not uh, easy. No, it's not easy.
0: No, it's not not easy. But I
1: I have taken a little bit of Arabic, and I can attest. It is (laughs) hard.
0: Okay, I believe you. I'm not going to try that experiment. <laughs> You'll pass on that. So tell us why you wrote "Lamas: an international history.
1: So in the spring of the year 2000, I found uh th- that I was pregnant. And I did what everybody does is they start doing research. And I went looking for a childbirth education class. And so I Googled the one word that I associate with childbirth education, which is Lamaze. <laughs> and that took me to the page of Lamaze International, um, which is the largest nonprofit childbirth preparation organization in the world. Um, and there was a link and it said history. And I thought, oh, I like history. I'm a historian. Let's click that. (laughs) Um, So I clicked it and it took me to this little short history of the Lamas method, and the very first sentence was, in 1951, French obstetrician Fernand Lamas traveled to the Soviet Union and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what? Yeah. What do you mean he traveled to the Soviet Union? This is crazy. How is this possible that as a Russian historian, I did not know that the Lamas method had anything at all to do with the Soviet Union? And that really got me thinking like, well, I want to know more about this. And um, I kept, you know, sort of digging and digging at it and found out that, you know, not much, really, almost nothing had been written about it. There was one article in English on that Soviet backstory. And then a so I decided I was going to write a book about that's the Soviet side of it because I'm a Soviet historian. And then a colleague of mine, Roberta Manning at Boston College said, oh, no, you should follow Lamaze back to France because he was involved in the Communist Party and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, how do you know this but um <laughs> then i thought i said to her well but i don't i don't know french she's like oh you know russian you've studied kazakh french is nothing i was like ah uh, french is nothing Um, Don't tell the French that. (laughs) Right, really. And so that took a few more years of me trying to work up the courage to embark on yet another language to to get under my belt to do this project. But she was right. It was irresistible. And, of course, then once you follow him back to France, you can't stop there. You've got to go to the United States because that's the place where it's had the most popularity and where his name is a household word. And so, really, the, the project just evolved very naturally out of this completely sort of random accident of that had nothing to do with my scholarly career at all, but just sort of serendipitously intersected um, between my personal life and my professional interests. Mm-hmm. One thing led to another, and all too many years later, here I am.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like a detective story. I mean, you were learning new things along the way.
1: Yes. That's yes. The, yeah. And it's always interesting when those things take you in directions that you don't expect, you know?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I know just what you mean. Far too few of my projects have done anything like that. Um, a lot of times historians reinterpret evidence that is already a present. I, I would say mm-hmm. that. I'm not going to. No, I, I think that's true. But this one, you're right. There's a revelation on every page for me. I did not know the Lamaze method had anything to do with the Soviet Union, and I certainly did not know it had anything to do with the wonderfully named, and we'll begin with him, British physician, Grantley Dick Reed. Lamaz may be a household name, but Grantley Dick Reed is not. So can you begin the story with him?
1: Sure. Sure. Um, So I will say that in certain circles, um, for example, among professional childbirth educators, um, Grantley-Digreed is a household name. And there was a time in the United States in the 1950s when he certainly was also a household name then, too. Um, But he has what his most enduring contribution to this history has been, that in 1933 he coined the phrase "natural childbirth," and so even though his name is somewhat forgotten, um, that contribution endures. Mm-hmm. And um, so he had this experience of um, being being a physician, helping kind of middle class women in Great Britain uh, through labor, and then the so the story goes, he went to a um, working class woman's household to help her give birth, and she seemed to be not experiencing any pain whatsoever. And he asked her about this, and she quite, you know, naively seemed to say, "Is there supposed to be pain?" And for him, this was this eye opening moment of um, what he he came to believe to be evidence that pain is not natural in childbirth but is a product of women's fears so He he developed this idea of what's called the fear-tension-pain cycle, that a woman anticipates it's going to be painful, she tenses up, and from that tension in her body comes pain in childbirth, that there's nothing intrinsically painful about childbirth. Now, this sounds a little bit crazy to our ears. Um, I think there are very few people who today would say there is no physical component to pain in normal birth, um, but I swear to you, he did in fact say this, mm-hmm. um, and he did really believe it, and he wasn't alone in believing it.
0: Mm-hmm. I was going to say, could we take a step? I don't know if step back. Can we talk about the environment in which he worked? And this is an environment that's that's really started to medicalize childbirth. How did people, let's say, British middle class women give birth in 1933?
1: That That's a really important question, Marshall, because if you don't understand that, then you can't understand why there's this quest for a different way to give birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so middle class women um, on both sides of the Atlantic um, were most, mostly giving birth at home, increasingly giving birth in the hospital. Um, the United States is kind of the leading edge of this curve, and um, most um, middle class women in the U.S. were attended by physicians. That was true in, um, or be in- increasingly true in Great Britain, though midwifery had continued to thrive in Great Britain. So there's important differences between the two contexts. Um, but there is, there, there is the use of, Uh, Drugs to ease the pain of labor. And that started in the middle of the 19th century as the very beginning of that. Mm -hmm. And by the early 20th century, it's becoming more and more popular, and it's really gaining ground in the 1930s, especially, and into the 1940s. And there's a whole range of different options. In Great Britain, nitrous oxide is very popular. That's not so popular in the United States, where they use what's called... um, Oh, it just flew out of my head. Um, it's okay. twilight, okay. they, they use twilight sleep, mm-hmm. which is a combination of morphine, um, and an, and an amnesia called scopolamine. So women would wake up having no memory of having given birth, not knowing what, how they behaved during their labor, often feeling, um, embarrassed that they might've behaved in some undignified way. Um, The beds on which women gave birth were equipped with leather straps to restrain them because they were known in this kind of fog of a drug-induced hallucinations. They could lash out at the the attendants. Um, So it was not a pleasant way to give birth, and it wasn't one in which women were what came to later be um, very concisely expressed as awake and aware, Mm -hmm. so that they couldn't really fully participate in their birth experiences. Um, So it was in that environment of the use of drugs, whether they be painkillers or sedatives um, or amnesics, to ease the pain of labor and to really kind of remove the woman's woman's consciousness from this situation of giving birth. Um, and, and Grantley Dick Reed was trying to, um, to create a new way of giving birth that women would find satisfying and dignified to use the words that they Imparted to this uh, natural childbirth method that he developed in the 1930s, and then became more popular in the 1940s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: How did he find himself in the presence of a? You said she was a not a middle class woman, a lower class woman. I don't know what to right. call it. How did he? How did he get there?
1: You know, I don't recall the specifics yeah, of okay. that.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I, I think it was some. He got called there um i think by a midwife who couldn't handle the situation if mm-hmm. i remember correctly um but it was not his normal practice um to work with that population
0: mm-hmm. okay i see it's a sort of a side question anyway so what does he do after he witnesses this um pain, painless i don't know what to call it painless childbirth what does he do what does he i guess he starts to research and how, yeah how does he form the program he eventually creates
1: right so he works with his own patients, and and this is quite important, actually, because he doesn't really conduct sort of what we would see as rigorous scientific studies and have control groups and those kinds of things. It's really just based on his own kind of intuitive um, experience of witnessing births and Um, you know, watching what works in his own practice. Um, So it's almost quite anecdotal, really, um, what his evidence comes out of. And so he starts off by trying to educate women about what to expect in childbirth because he has this idea that it is fear that is the source of the pain, not anything physiological. And so how do you get at removing that fear? And one way is by teaching women about what is happening to their bodies during pregnancy, labor and birth. So they know what to expect. And so they greet it with, from a place of knowledge and confidence rather than a place of fear and resistance. Mm -hmm. And then he couples that with um, a lot of really, you know, positive reinforcement, you know, coaching women, keeping them, trying to keep them calm, talking to them in a very soothing way. And some of his critics take this and say, look, he's really, he has this mesmer-like effect on people. This is about his own charismatic personality um, and other charismatic doctors could do something like this, but it's not scientific evidence that it's anything other than the suggestibility of his patients um and he disputed that he said look it's not suggestion it's not hypnosis it's about education and confidence and and comforting women and and being fully present for them to help them through this process but after they've already been sort of trained to relax their bodies and um and anticipate what is going to happen um, in a relaxed and confident way.
0: Mm-hmm. At what point does he start to hold classes? Or does it become organized?
1: Um, so from the very beginning, he is working with... Um, a nurse who is running these classes and he does some of the training himself as well. And um, so that starts really in the 19, uh, mid 1930s. And then it expands by in the, in the 1940s and fifties. But they're actually even earlier than that, there is precedent for childbirth preparation classes, not of this ilk though, um, mostly aimed at immigrant women um, and kind of the working poor um, with this idea of this kind of, you know, middle class, benevolent um, women going into um, working class and immigrant neighborhoods um, when women are having home birth and getting them to make sure that the environment is sterile. So there, there is... Precedent for childbirth education classes, but now those classes are being aimed at middle-class um, white women um, instead of these urban immigrant wor- working and poor women.
0: Mm-hmm. I see.
1: And so it's about not—it's it's less about creating a clean and safe environment, and it's more about creating a satisfying and dignified birth experience.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. So let's—I want to say—leap. Uh, to the Soviet Union, and I want you to get us there somehow. Um, <clears throat> how does uh, psychoprophylaxis, if we can call it that generically, get to the Soviet Union, or do the Soviets invent it independently?
1: Yeah, so, um Grantley, Dick Reed had quite a bee in his bonnet that they did not get it independently, that they ripped him off, um, and the Soviets... Uh, obviously denied this, and I would say every, every, all evidence points to the fact that the Soviets came up with their method independently, and um, and it did differ in in certain ways. And so, while Grantley Dick Reed's method is called either natural childbirth or the Reed method, psychoprophylaxis is this particular method that emerged in the Soviet Union that then got picked up in France, and so. In the Soviet Union, parallel to these developments, beginning in the 1920s, there were um, several different researchers in the Soviet Union working on the use of hypnosis to manage pain in childbirth. And among those researchers, one guy, his name was uh, Ilya Velvovsky, and he was working in Ukraine in the city of Kharkov, which had a very vibrant community of psychotherapists. And um, he became convinced after World War II, um, after having worked for you know, two decades on hypnosis and childbirth to manage the pain of labor, he became convinced this was never going to be practical. Though he he had success, it was very, I'm going to do it, I'm going to make a terrible pun here, mm-hmm. labor intensive. Mm,
0: wasn't it, though?
1: <laughs> um, to work one-on-one uh, with each um, laboring mother and that – That was never going to be something that could be deployed on a national scale to help millions of women. So he came up with this idea of having these group classes that would rely heavily on the power of suggestion, sort of encouraging women that um, you know, there's no reason. There won't be any pain in childbirth. There's no reason to expect it to be painful. Everything is going to go well. Kind of repeatedly reinforcing this positive thinking, and he coupled that with, like, Dick Reed, education about what to expect in labor and birth, and um, and he came up with his own system that was very similar to Dick Reed's. Yes, but justified in a completely different way. So whereas Dick Reed Basically, you know, his system emerged out of his own personal observation and his anecdotal experience, and he was not very interested in coming up with fancy schmancy ways to justify it. In the Soviet Union, was, had, had been had a background in um, Pavlovian physical psychology, he was interested in notions of conditional response, and he and the team that he worked with um, drew on Pavlov's theory of conditional response, which, as you know, is the whole ringing bell, salivating mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, to explain how their system worked and that was not at all part of dick reed's thinking Mm -hmm. so they had this physical psychological explanation about it about training the nervous system and about the role of the cerebral cortex Um, and it it just had the ring of science in a way that dick reed's work did not Mm -hmm. and i think ultimately that's Going, that plays an important role in why psychoprophylaxis comes to eclipse Dick Reed's method in many ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I should say this has the ring of, um, I, want, I want to say in the post-psychoanalytic or post-Pavlovian world, the ring of common sense, because if you are conditioned to think something is going to be painful, you are going to fear it greatly, and, and it probably is going to be more painful when it happens. Uh, and it's yep. certainly the case that women are conditioned to think that childbirth is going to be painful. I mean, it's in the Bible. It's one of the curses, right? I mean, we came to the fall, and so we get the pain of childbirth. I mean, that's about as deep as you can go in the Western tradition. This this is a bad thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
1: but I think if you asked most women, they would say you are out of your flipping gourd if Mm -hmm. you don't think there's a physiological component to it as well. And I think that's where these mid-century guys, whether it's Dick Reed or... Velvovsky or Lamaze later um, have this. It's this peculiar moment in the history of medicine where there is this consensus, albeit among a small group of people that childbirth has no physiological component to the pain. It's completely in women's minds. And they explain that in different ways. Some of them turn to Freudian explanations. When it comes to the United States, it gets a lot of that kind of Freudian explanation. It has this Pavlovian conditioning explanation in the Soviet Union. But however you explain it, this idea that there is no physiological reality to the pain of childbirth Mm-hmm. I mean, I just think that sounds completely cra- crackers.
0: Well, I think it does sound completely crackers, too. I agree. But uh, that, that notion did not die in the 1940s uh, and 50s because I had a football coach who used to say, pain is a state of mind. That was his favorite thing to say. So when you went out yeah. there and got whacked, he'd say, pain is a state of mind. I'm like, not Really? <laughs> right so, um,
1: and there yeah. there are good examples of the ca- of cases where that is true like phantom limb syndrome mm-hmm. is a good example um but those are really extraordinarily exceptional and the reason why this psychologizing about pain in childbirth is so acute i think stems from a long tradition of a kind of readiness to explain women's pain in psychological terms. Um, Going back to ideas about hysteria, for example. Hysteria is the great
0: example. Yeah, that's right. So then something happens that can only happen in the Soviet Union, or I suppose someplace (laughs) like the Soviet Union. I suppose it could happen in North Korea today. But in 1951, the practice becomes universal. How does that happen?
1: Yes. Yes. I love this. Like, does the central government just decrease by fiat? Everybody should do this. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And it is in no other context that that happens. And really the question then is, You know, why did they pick this? It was not the only method on the table. Uh, There were other choices out there. Nitrous oxide, which, as I said earlier, was popular in Great Britain, still is popular in Great Britain, is widely used in Canada and elsewhere, um, had had first been used to alleviate pain in childbirth in the 1880s in Russia, in St. Petersburg. So there was a long and domestic tradition of nitrous oxide. There were also other methods that were they were experimenting with but it was this one that they plucked of all those choices to make national policy and the reason for for it i argue is that they could do it on the cheap Mm -hmm. Um, that this did not require great investment in the pharmaceutical industry Um, and the 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 problem was that nitrous oxide was what the doctors wanted Um, but the the Soviet pharmaceutical industry could not produce enough nitrous oxide or the machines to – there's a machine that allows you to self-administer without overdosing on nitrous oxide. These were made in the Soviet Union. They'd been made in Great Britain um, since the 1930s. They were also produced in the Soviet Union. But they couldn't make enough of them to go around. And so psychoprophylaxis became this way of – Doing something about pain in childbirth, um, being able to claim that the Soviet government was interested in the welfare of women and trying to promote fecundity after the demographic losses of World War II, but being able to do it on the cheap.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now I have to ask a question: the, what, Was um were i forget what they're called the places where people go and give childbirth in the soviet union Yedom, what are they called right.
1: maternity houses yeah maternity
0: houses were they were they around at that time were they were there a lot of them
1: yes there uh, were so and i
0: was say, yeah the reason i mentioned that is it would become it would be easier to implement a program like this if you had a vast network, network. of these yeah
1: Yes, that's a, that is a good point. It is, you know, it's a highly centralized system, um, although whatever you're going to do, there, whether it's in the Soviet Union or in Great Britain or France or the United States or wherever, you're going to need the personnel to be trained to do it. And you're going to need whatever material um, to to do it. So right. Right. Uh, there's still those kind of physical
0: obstacles. Yeah, I mean, and you, you point out something – or at least you hindered it. Something, you, the people who do this have to be trained, and you can't by administrative fiat just train tens of thousands of people to do this.
1: That's right, and and in fact, um, one of the the maybe disappointing things that I found is that really it really goes very down downhill very quickly um, in the Soviet Union because they really don't have. The ability to back up those central fiat's with actual action on the ground. So there are plans put in place to start to, you know, I mean, and we see this story in like every realm of. The yeah, Soviet I'm laughing
0: Union. because that's the story of the Soviet Union, right there.
1: That's right. That's right. Whether it's education or the arts or the military or whatever, this is it is a common. Theme that you know the the word comes down from the center. You do this, and then somehow that doesn't seem to happen. Surprise, yeah, surprise! Right, yeah, right. Um, and this is a good example of it. And from from that fiat 1951 until Stalin dies in 1953, there is a big push for it, but it really falls apart um, very quickly in the context of the the turn toward de-Stalinization and the thaw. So once there's this like lifting of um, Of restraint on the conversation in in medicine as there is in science and every other realm of Soviet society, then the detractors of this method are able to come out of the woodwork and in both active and passive ways sort of slow down this process until really it just grinds to a halt.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But for that brief moment after 1951, it is not only a top-down administrative initiative, in the favor of women, let's let's say that and be honest about it, they were trying to help women, but it's also a propaganda tool, and this is how it gets us to France, right?
1: Yes, yes. So it, it becomes one of the ways that the Soviet Union touts its um, sort of vanguard role in, um, you know, making a better life for working-class women and also it, the innovative character of its medicine. Um, so... Fernand Lamaze is a French obstetrician. He works in Paris. He has two practices. One is a kind of posh private practice, but he also works at a clinic that's funded by the Metallurgical Workers Union, um, which then took me to work in the archives of the Metallurgical Workers (laughs) Union, which is not a place I ever expected myself (laughs) to be. And he... So he's hanging out with all of these union people who are all Communist Party members. He himself is not a member of the Communist Party, but he's, he's sympathetic to their cause. He's what uh, in the old days you'd call a fellow traveler, mm-hmm. and, um, and maybe may, that might be overstating it. There's a little debate about how sympathetic he was, but in any case, whatever uh, his specific you know feelings about it were, we do know he worked. Um, in this uh, hospital, in this clinic that's funded by the union and the union leadership are all members of the Communist Party, as mm-hmm. was not uncommon in France in yeah, those I, days. I was
0: going to say, if I could just interject, I always feel compelled when we talk about this era in European history to say that all the right thinking people were left leaning after World War II in Europe that's because yeah. the communists were way ahead of everybody else in the Nazis. That's right. Way and, ahead.
1: <laughs> yes. And and I'd say especially in France and in Italy, the Communist Party is particularly strong. Yeah. And um he winds up going on this um basically a junket to the Soviet Union in nineteen fifty one, the same year that psychoprophylaxis has become mm-hmm. national policy. Um, and he had just heard at a conference in paris a soviet obstetrician named Nikolaev had given a paper about psychoprophylaxis he was in the audience uh blew his mind and he's like whoa i want to learn more about that yeah. uh, and so then he goes on this trip to the soviet union and the whole th- so the story goes the whole time he's just like i want to see a birth using psychoprophylaxis you know demanding 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 and his Handlers are like, oh, let us show you this lovely clinic here, and let us show you this model, whatever, institute there. And they go to Leningrad, Moscow, and Tbilisi. And each place he's demanding to see a birth. And then finally, at the 11th hour, they're on their last stop. They're in Leningrad. And he finally gets to go to Nikolaev's clinic and see a birth using psychoprophylaxis. And um, he is incredibly impressed. Now, personally, I would give my eye teeth to have been a fly on the wall in that room because you got to wonder what did they tell this woman who was giving birth, Mm. whose birth was going to be witnessed by this foreign guest Mm. from the capitalist West um, who had been demanding for weeks to see the effectiveness firsthand of this method. So I, I would really like to know how she was About Mm -hmm. how she should comport herself, Mm -hmm. but in any case, we know nothing. We don't know anything about who she was. We know that other. We don't know her name. We know she was a 35 year old typist, and this was her first child. And she, in his eyes, gave no signs of any discomfort whatsoever. Um, And he said that her 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 body was completely slack. Um During this process of giving birth, and he went back to Paris, completely converted to this method and wanting to propagandize uh, about propagandize about it in Paris and start practicing it at his clinic and his um you know his administrators who were all um you know, thought favorably of the Soviet Union, were members of the Communist Party, um, were enthusiastic about supporting him as a way of not just helping women have a more satisfying birth experience, um, but as a way of spreading the good news about the uh, benevolent nature of uh, Soviet
0: power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then actually they begin to practice psychoprophylaxis, and uh, it spreads, right?
1: That's right. So his clinic um, in Paris then becomes this sort of epicenter for training doctors really from all over the world. Um, and spreading word about it and there is correspondence between, um, this clinic and very far from flung places, um, Vietnam, for example. They're also communicating with Eastern Europeans, Poles, hung- Hungarians who are. Getting This method from the Soviet Union, but they're at the same time in communication with um, the French who are promoting it there. So it's this whole global network um, of people interested in this alternative for, I must say, very different reasons than why the Soviet Union was promoting it. In the Soviet Union, they didn't have the money to invest in the production of drugs. In France, they had the drugs. But the drugs that were available at that time, uh, especially uh, twilight sleep, these were very powerful drugs that were known to have an adverse effect on. Babies babies would be born um, listless, drowsy. They wouldn't um, breastfeed right away. These are very powerful drugs. They'd have depressed breathing. Um, and so there was a lot of concern, not only about women being able to have a satisfying and dignified experience, but about the health impact of these drugs. And so in France, unlike in the Soviet Union, they were looking for a, a way to... Um, to approach pain from a psychological perspective as much for safety reasons as anything else. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So uh, it it enjoys some success in France. You have an interesting uh, part of the book in which you talk about testimonials, mm. uh, which, which may, makes it seem as if it's working. Yes. Or am I wrong? I, yeah, go ahead.
1: So um, they need, so Lamaze and his kind of right-hand man, uh, a man named Pierre Vallée, They need evidence to demonstrate the efficacy of psychoprophylaxis. So, unlike the Soviet doctors, they decide that they are going to gather testimonials from women who have experienced. Um, labor using psychoprophylaxis and use that as evidence um, in support of their project. So that is coupled with their own evaluations based on their observations of these women. So they have their own system where the physician um, scores a woman's performance on a scale of one to five. Um, and then they also at the same time afterwards interview these women where the women talk about what they've experienced. And, um, one of the interesting things about it is that, um, this, if, if it's not the very first time that, um, patient testimonials are used as medical evidence, it's got to be among the very first times. And, one, I also think it's interesting that in the late 1950s, that methodology flows back into the Soviet Union, and Velvovsky begins to do it. His dissertation uh, is in part based on that use of testimony, which was not part of his method beforehand. Um, so we see in the in the gathering of that evidence, um, not that the the flow of this technique is not one direction, but that the Soviets are also watching what's going on in France and they're open to learning from their students um, in this respect. And um, the, the testimony, I have testimony from the 1950s, from the sixties, from the seventies. And it's interesting how that changes over time, how women talk about their experiences differently in those early days in France. um, They're very quick to give Give away credit for why they do well. They're very grateful to their doctors and to the midwives, um, and they're they're really ready to say, "I could I couldn't have done it without this." This is really about them keeping me on track, and at the same time, they take on their own shoulders all blame for any shortcomings, mm-hmm. and they feel tremendous. Um, remorse about letting down the physicians, about disappointing them, about not having practiced harder, and it's so um, heart wrenching to read these stories of women who have had disappointing birth experiences and then beat themselves up over it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, I think there's that there's a lot of women in America today who can, for a variety of reasons, um, connect with that impulse yeah. to yeah. second guess how they. Uh, how they proceeded, the choices they made Mm -hmm. um, during labor, and feel disappointed with the outcome. Um, You know, albeit, you know, they're, of course, grateful that they have a a healthy baby, um, but feel that the experience could have been different.
0: Yeah, I can attest to that. That's definitely Mm -hmm. a lot of of second-guessing after you're done. So Mm -hmm. in, in an interesting twist, and, of course, this was predictable, after the uh, now, the now uh, named Lama's method gets some traction in France, it jumps across the English channel to Dr. Reed, um, what's his last name? Uh,
1: Dr. Dick Dr. Dick Reed's, Dick
0: Reed's territory. Great m- m- yeah. 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 so tell us about that.
1: Yes. So I should say that technically, I, I resist calling it the, the Lama's method yet, um, because I really think... So the, the first known instance of it being called the Lamaze method, I, I have that from 1956 is the first time I've seen that. And then I have Dick Reed once saying in like 1959, there is no Lamaze method, but it doesn't really catch on until it comes to the U.S. in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So I stick with calling it psychoprophylaxis, especially because Lamaze, who who dies in um, in 1957, he would have been horrified by it being called the Lamas method. Yeah. He would not have taken that much credit mm-hmm. himself. But Dick Reed um, gets quite the wild hair about um, Lamaze and his shenanigans, because on top of everything else, Dick Reed, who I have to say, I have heaps of correspondence from Dick Reed. And he, of all of the cast of characters in the book comes through as really the most vivid figure. And uh, he's quite a, a prickly fellow, and I and I don't blame him because he had been working at this for twenty years um, and had not gotten much recognition for it. it. was only just beginning to make strides in in Great Britain, the United States also in in Canada, in Australia, but had not made many inroads on continental Europe at all and along comes this guy who gets this thing from the godless communists who Dick Reed despises. He's rabidly (laughs) anti-Soviet. And they're doing something that sounds just like what he's been doing for nearly 20 years. And they have the gall not only not to credit him, but when they do credit him, it's always in this like, well, there was this other method that this guy, Grantley, Dick Reed came up with that was an antecedent to this newer, more advanced method that we have to offer. So that must have stung. And um, I'm sympathetic with how uh, bruised his ego must have been, but he just rants and raves. He is clearly just beside himself uh, over what is going on in France. And what he doesn't have that Lamaze has is a whole network of people ready to help promote this method. So Lamaze is able in France to tap in to the um, women's organizations that are affiliated with the communist party to help spread the word of this. And Dick Reed has, there are, there are women who are converted to be be big believers in his method, but nothing like the kind of well-organized network that Lamaze has uh, to marshal for his advantage. And so he just rants and raves in rage about psychoprophylaxis. And he says, um, it's plagiarism. He says that, um, you know, that, 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 this is a communist plot meant to, um, convert women to the Soviet cause. And he really sees principally a, a political agenda behind the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that, um, women themselves only cared about what worked they didn't care that it came from the godless communists they wanted it they wanted to use whatever worked best and they increasingly became convinced that that psychoprophylaxis had something to offer whether it was different or could be used in a kind of complementary and integrated way, synthesized with natural childbirth, they didn't really care. But he, till his dying day, was very um, orthodox about his method being the first, the best, and the only.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, he does sound like a colorful character. Sounds bitter, but uh, I guess I would be too. So. In an interesting twist, again, somewhat predictable, an American in Paris gives birth to a child under the direction of a Lamas physician and writes a book about it. Yes, yes. So it's yes. Marjorie 100- Carmel is her name, is that right?
1: Audrey Carmel, yeah. yes.
0: Uh-huh. So can um, you tell so, us her story?
1: Yeah, so she she actually is one of Lamaze's patients, but not at the Metallurgical Workers' Union <laughs> Club. Oddly enough. No, you have a uh,
0: picture of her, and she doesn't look anything like a uh, metal worker.
1: No, she's, she's an actress. She's yeah. quite beautiful and glamorous looking. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, she is a patient in his private clinic. She has this Arduous but wonderful, satisfying experience. And then she comes back to the United States um, and she's pregnant for the second time. And she tries to find in New York City a physician who will support her to use psychoprophylaxis. And she can't find one. And um, that encourages her to write a book about her experience in Paris. Uh, called Thank You, Dr. Lamaze, which is really where we can start talking about um, the name Lamaze coming into the American vocabulary and um, something emerging in the United States that is uh, really identifiable as the Lamaze method. Mm-hmm. And so she hooks up with this woman, Elizabeth Bing, who is a childbirth educator and um, a... Uh, physical therapist, and she um, had been training people in the Dick Reed method, but um, she was growing uh, dissatisfied with it, didn't think it was as effective as it could be, and when she heard about Marjorie Carmel's experience, she was very interested in learning more about it. And the two of them got together with a physician um, named Benjamin Segal, And the three together founded what became known as the American Society for Psychoprophylaxis and Obstetrics, uh, which really just rolls right off the tongue. Doesn't name. it, though? Yes. Um, also known as ASPO. <laughs> and, um, and today called Lamaze International is the, uh, is what it becomes renamed as, uh, eventually. And, um, and that is really the start of a kind of organized movement to promote psychoprophylaxis in the United States in 1960.
0: Yeah. So it's a precisely, um, this time or just right around this time that, and I hate to skip back and forth, but you have to do this international history that, uh, the uh, psycho uh, prophylaxis movement crashes and burns in the Soviet Union.
1: Yes, yes, and um, so in. You know, like I said before, Stalin dies in 1953. I don't mean to suggest that Stalin gave a hoot about psychoprophylaxis. (laughs) I have no idea if he'd ever even heard the word. But but it is a rather momentous uh, occasion in the Soviet Union that really opens the doors to sweeping change in really every realm of, of scholarly investigation and everyday life and, Among the sweeping changes that are ushered in is the beginning of the end of psychoprophylaxis. So one of the reasons why it appealed um, was not just that financially it was feasible in the Soviet context, but it also did have um, uh, appeal ideologically because it was based on Pavlovian physical psychology and Pavlov. Was enjoying, um, uh, a tremendous fashion in the Soviet Union, and his ideas were used to justify all sorts of things, um, in the, in the early 1950s. And so it was kind of part and parcel of what's been called Pavlovism, um, this, re, this, um, em- emphasis on Pavlovian, uh, Pavlov's contributions to science in a number of realms. Um, and that, ideological that need to justify medicine and science on ideological grounds begins to recede. And there it really is a moment of more open and honest debate about medicine and science in in the mid 1950s after Stalin dies. And psychoprophylaxis becomes a casualty of that Mm -hmm. because in 1956 there's a big conference in kiev um, celebrating the five-year anniversary of that 1951 uh, decree that made psychoprophylaxis national policy and it's not just an occasion to uh to mark the anniversary, but it's also a moment of really authentic debate about the successes and failures of it. And what you see at at that conference is, on the one hand, the obstetricians line up against it, and the psychologists line up in defense of it, Velvovsky first and foremost. And the obstetricians say, look, this is nonsense. It may help women to be calm and quiet, but let's not kid ourselves that it's really alleviating pain. It's altering behavior, but it's not actually alleviating pain. So maybe it has um, good use in uh, maternity wards to keep women calm and quiet and make sort of the business of the maternity wards run more smoothly and the women more manageable, but it needs to be used in conjunction with real pain relievers. And you people are out of your gourd. If you think that, pain in childbirth is entirely in women's minds. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those obstetricians win the day. Mm -hmm. They get the upper hand in that argument. And it's really after that 1956 meeting that interest in psychoprophylaxis peters out and it's still on the books and into the 1960s and 70s they're still gathering statistics on the number of women trained in psychoprophylaxis which oddly enough is near 100 percent um it's one of those lies damn lies, statistics and then mm-hmm. soviet's statistics. <laughs> uh, so they're all putting it down that yeah, we're training everybody in this, but we real there's no more meaningful research on it. By the mid nineteen sixties, all research stops on the on psychoprophylaxis. And I could not find a single person and I was in Kharkov, the place where this originated, I could not find a single person who had been trained in psychoprophylaxis or who had trained someone else in psychoprophylaxis. The closest I could come was someone who was a medical student in the 1970s saying, I vaguely remember hearing something about it. And that was in the birthplace of psychoprophylaxis. So it really just became completely... Um, though it existed on paper, it did not really exist in practice anymore.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So, I mean, it's interesting to note, I don't know if you'd agree with this sort of retelling of what you just said, but the idea, let's just leave um, uh, uh, Mr. Dick Reed out of it for a second. The idea is born in the Soviet Union, and then it's sort of laundered in France, and mm-hmm. then it jumps the pond, now decommunized and shorn of anything it, having to do with the Soviet Union, thanks to right. uh, uh, thanks to Marjorie—is that her name? Yeah. Yes. Yes, Carmel. And then, it, by a, by a really kind of amazing coincidence, it latches onto the uh, feminist, the nascent feminist movement, rebranded as natural childbirth.
1: That's right. It's so when remarkable,
0: to, really, if you think it, about it,
1: it is that. because, and of course, when you think about it, you're just like, there is no way Stalin was interested, or Stalinist Russia would, uh, pardon the pun again, give birth to something that has anything to do with second wave feminism. Yeah, right. Like what? How did that happen? Um, yes, it's and and the thing is, of course, that's our association with it like if you ask somebody well what do you associate with natural childbirth they would say they might say you know birkenstocks and hairy legs right. and you know, yeah. second wave feminism right. or yeah. some hippie thing do you know what i mean those are the kind of pop cultural associations um like um on all in the family um the 1970s sitcom uh archie bunker's daughter gloria, gloria used, yeah uh, use natural childbirth, specifically the Lamaze method, um, and so those are those kinds of associations of that, um, you know, uh, countercultural and feminist associations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes that Soviet backstory all the more mind blowing, yeah. uh, because further away from that you could not get if you tried. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, this the feminist thing um, is I. Part of, The reason it starts being called natural childbirth um, in the United States is because um, Grantley Dick Reed's method um, was in the nineteen late 40s and especially in the 1950s building up popularity in the U.S. And when psychoprophylaxis enters the picture, it is being built on a foundation that was already laid by the Reed method. Um, and so what you have in the U.S. is this emergence eventually by the 1970s um, of a kind of synthesis of psychoprophylaxis and the Reed method to really be something quite different than what was practiced in, in the in the Soviet Union or in France. And feminists latch on to this idea of natural childbirth as a way to resist what they would have characterized as um, patriarchal obstetric authority um, because it enabled women to manage the pain of labor while saying no to um, pharmacological pain relief. If you want drugs when you're having birth, then you have to have a doctor.
0: Mm Mm-hmm
1: because you need, and you need to do it in a hospital. But if you can cope with the pain of labor, um, without turning to drugs, then you can have a home birth. You can have a midwife. Um, you can have a birth in hospital, um, but really kind of keep the doctor's role to a bare minimum. And so in that way, feminists saw in the United States, saw it as a way to empower women to kind of take back control of their bodies in birth, Mm -hmm. um, And they embraced that. Um, But that's that's a very different reason yet again um, for why to turn to this method. Mm -hmm. And quite interestingly, in France, in the same period for French feminists, it meant completely the opposite. In France, psychoprophylaxis had been promoted and was popularized. um, And there was a lot of. um, Encouragement, we could say, or alternatively, if you were detracting, you might say pressure, on women to rely solely on psychoprophylaxis to manage pain, even when they were asking or demanding um, drugs to relieve pain. So in France, the feminist cause became: drugs should be available to women on demand. It should be enough that the woman asks for it. And so the feminist cry there became access to drugs, not resistance to drugs. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I find that fascinating. I think that one thing that really stuck with me from your book is that that particular moment where American feminists and women said, we'd like more uh, control or more power uh, during the process of giving birth, that part stuck. I mean, I Mm -hmm. can tell you from personal experience that, uh, my wife was really quite in control of, mm-hmm. of the way she gave birth. And we had midwives who also mm-hmm. made sure that the doctors were there, but not really there. And um, and that was an empowering thing. You know, I mean, she was in charge. Uh, th- th- there was no psychoprophylaxis, but mm-hmm. it was very clear that, that they had asserted a kind of authority over the birth room that they hadn't had prior to that time.
1: Yes. And I, I would say that... That is certainly the most enduring contribution of the feminist health movement to maternity care. Is the you know for for all the criticisms that are rightly laid with conventional maternity care in the United States, um, there is no question that it is vastly different than it was in the sixties and seventies in yeah. terms of listening to women and. Um give you know, having husbands present or partner's right, present, right uh, you know, that was something new. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and and it is unquestionably a more humane experience than it was.
0: Yeah, I mean, they used to have birthing theaters and now they have these birthing suites. I don't know what right. The history of those are, but they're quite nice. I mean, you could live in there. <laughs> yep. They really are nice. and that's uh, right. And, and you give birthright where you stay. Uh, and you know they're, they're, the attendants—that is, the, um, the midwives—are there, and they're respected by the doctors, the anesthesiologists, and so on and so forth. And in fact, in the hospital where we, my wife, recently gave birth, there is a, a midwife clinic—I guess you would call it—just right next door to the hospital, and that's, that's where you right. go for your appointments. And those
1: changes of bringing of the birthing suite of of not you know rushing the woman on the gurney down to the delivery room right. when she's in the throes of hard labor of having the partner in the room with them accompanying them through labor and birth of bringing midwives back into the picture all of those changes are responses to of a, a a very clear. Um, turn that women in the 1970s were making away from hospitalized birth, it was always the vast majority of American women gave birth in hospital yeah. in the 1970s, but there were a significant number of women who were beginning to turn to home birth. Mm-hmm. And that those kind of more humane approaches to birth, getting rid of things that really had no medical foundation, such as um as shaving and enemas mm-hmm. uh, and having the, you know, having lots of pillows and the baths, all of that is about trying to woo women back to hospitals yeah. and to turn away from home births and to feel like they could have a homier experience within the confines of the hospital.
0: Uh-huh. I, w- I wanted to ask a couple of qu- We've taken up a lot of your time, but I had a couple of questions. What affected the uh- the, the I don't know about invention. I think epidurals were invented like in the 1940s or 50s, but the widespread use of 1940s. epidurals have. I mean, now they're just sort of standard operating procedure. And I heard this about Australia, and I don't know if it's true, but you're there. They're like women just schedule their births. And they're reduced, and they go get an epidural, and that's it.
1: And that, that's not is any that more true? so. The, oh, that's really? not more the practice here than it is in, in the United okay, States. Okay,
0: good, then I'm wrong. So tell us about you- epidurals.
1: Um, though the overall rate of epidurals is the same pretty okay. much. It's about three quarters of women in the United States and Australia get epidural mm-hmm. anesthesia, which is significantly higher than in, um, in Great Britain, for example, where oh, there's a lot of reliance on nitrous oxide. Huh. Um, so yeah, epidurals came into fashion in the 1970s, increasing in the 1980s and beyond. And There's debate about why. I mean, one reason is they are incredibly effective, you know, Um, compared to nitrous oxide, which kind of takes the edge off pain, which actually may be enough for plenty of women. Mm -hmm. Uh, But epidural anesthesia gives you what a lot of the women who were seeking natural childbirth had wanted, which is the chance to be awake and aware And participate. Mm -hmm. So they're relatively safe. I'm not saying that there aren't risks involved, but they're relatively safe. They um, and you can you have complete clarity of mind. Mm -hmm. And um, there are obviously downsides. Like, for example, you can't walk around, which is something that promotes labor. But um, they came into fashion because, um, for one thing, hospitals had to give anesthesiologists something to do. (laughs) Um, And this was a way to generate revenue. It's a pretty expensive thing to do, certainly compared to nitrous oxide. Um, But the other thing is customer demand. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are giving women a lot of what they want, which is the chance to be awake and understand what's going on around them fully conscious and have total mental clarity and not experience pain.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess my question is when women became aware that they could get an epidural and it was effective in the ways that you say, how did the people that were preparing the women uh, for childbirth adjust Mm -hmm. the sort of prophylactic techniques that they said, well, you know, we really don't need to do this. I mean, we went through a birthing class when we had our first child. Uh, They explained to us what was going to happen. And that was good. They talked to us about breathing and that was good. And uh, they said, you know, uh, these are the stages that you're going to go through, and it's important the husband is there to comfort the woman, and and and, and it was nice being there with other uh, pregnant people, I guess I would say, uh, but, but we didn't talk about psychoprophylaxis.
1: No. So in so psychoprophylaxis in the 1980s changes from being a method of childbirth. To being a philosophy about childbirth, and it is because the epidural really undermines the whole reason why anyone would try to use psychoprophylaxis. And so, the childbirth educators, uh, Lamaze instructors in the 1980s, were faced with with um, expectant parents who said to them, "Why do I need all this?" mumbo-jumbo about the breathing patterns um, and the re- relaxation when I can just get an epidural mm-hmm. and it'll do away with the pain with a lot less work. Yeah. And that's a pretty hard argument to make, mm-hmm. um, a case against that. But they, they talked about it a lot in Lamaze International, saying things like, you know, about the raising questions about the safety of epidurals, also really emphasizing the the issue of satisfaction. And that Um, is really where natural childbirth is today. There's a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, this being an accomplishment, um, that it's something that women are able to achieve with their bodies. And and for women who succeed at natural childbirth, that can be enormously satisfying to say, I did this. For women who don't succeed, who tried, wanted to do it and don't succeed, Um, that can be profoundly disappointing. And it's a quite a bitter pill because they feel like they failed at something. Um, And then there are other women who say the lot of you are out of your gourds because why would anybody (laughs) bother?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm familiar with that, that notion that somehow you fail if you get an epidural and, and Mm -hmm. I, and I I found it baffling personally, but it's not me who's given birth to the kid. Uh, So I certainly sympathized and, and, It's just hard to see somebody in pain holding off like that.
1: Well, the one thing
0: I don't want to say, I'm like, I'm not the victim here. I'm not the one given person. Right, right. I don't want to put the attention on me.
1: (laughs) Something to chew on in terms of thinking about that is nobody would have a root canal without having anesthesia. No, they wouldn't. So why is it that we attach this special quality to this particular kind of pain. I think that's an interesting thing to ponder.
0: It is an interesting thing to ponder. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are people who could answer your question. I'm not that person, but I think there are people who, who might, I mean, one thing that does occur to me, uh, um, and that is that the, the, um, what is the best way to put this? The training of the mind Uh, Is something that is well known in lots of religious traditions, not particularly Christianity or Judaism or Islam, I think. But there are religious traditions that do do this effectively. Um, But it is very hard and it takes lots of practice. And Mm -hmm. I I just think modern people don't have time for that. I just I really don't. (laughs) It's easier to just take the drugs.
1: It, it absolutely is easier to take the drugs. Yeah. I think yeah. someone who would want to defend natural childbirth and would answer that um the point I raise about um uh, about a root canal would say among other things that you know for one thing it's it's pain you know is going to end. It's only a limited amount of time you'll be in that intense pain. Mm-hmm. But they would also say that um you know, whatever drugs you take are going to have an impact on the child. We know that it passes through the placenta and you mm-hmm. don't want that to get to your baby. There are, however safe epidurals are, there are risks associated with it. So there, there's medical and there's also emotional reasons why you would choose not to do this. And, you know, pain in childbirth is normal. Yeah. Um, whereas pain from a root canal is, Um, pathological yeah so the idea of treating that as opposed to using the pain of childbirth as a signal for progress in labor and you know a healthy normal progression of labor Mm -hmm. those are two very different things but whether that means that you um should suck it up and endure it uh is a different question you know but i don't think that um the answer lies in being too judgy about anyone else's choices.
0: Oh yeah. I would never No, I know, I no. I know that I'm not a suck it up and endurance kind of person, but I'm not going to, mm-hmm. not going to place that upon anybody else. I'm not going to do that. No way. I'm taking <laughs> well, the drugs in a, a second, still- man. No way. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but I'm taking the drugs. <laughs> so the Lamaze organization, the international laws, what's it called again? The Lamaze international. It still exists. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes, it does.
0: So yeah. what do they do now?
1: Um, they advocate for um, evidence based uh, obstetric care maternity care um, and to increasingly have um, humane practices of childbirth and which are empowering to women and to educate women about all of their options in childbirth in terms of of pain medication and who can be with them and mm-hmm. um, and they don't do. Is the whole breathing and relaxation technique has gone by the wayside?
0: It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Well, kudos to them for evolving, you know, in a kind of intelligent yeah. way. I really, that's the people that run and that fighting. organization. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They weren't. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they they didn't commit suicide by 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 uh, by idealism like the Soviet Union did. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, so then, then uh, uh, Paula, thank you very much. We've taken up a lot of your time today. I really appreciate it. It's a great book. Uh, Let's close the interview by uh, having you answer our traditional final question. And that is, what are you working on now?
1: Well, I've got a couple of irons in the fire. Um, I'm actually doing a kind of um, uh, some, some more work on Grantley Dick Reed. Um, He in the book is there only as he intersects psychoprophylaxis but he really deserves fuller treatment on his own i'm actually going to london next month to do more research on him um and i'm also um, going to launch a project about the history of nitrous oxide um and i've got a title which mm-hmm. is no no laughing matter
0: yeah 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 ha, ha, to ha, yeah. One okay, yeah okay all right yeah Yeah, I got Um,
1: that's just just getting uh, off the ground
0: (laughs) off the ground. Yeah, Just lifting up. up. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have high expectations for it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah.
0: All right. So anyway, today we have been talking with my friend Paula Michaels about her book, *Lamas: an international history. And Paul, let me thank you for being on the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I
0: appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. And let me thank everybody who listens to this webcast. We really appreciate your support and hope that you tune in next week. Bye-bye.